0: I know you all already know how to meditate. And you already all know how to pursue enlightenment. And yet somehow it's helpful to hear it again. So I'm going to tell you again what you already know. So please bear with me. we go on meditation retreat, we're giving ourselves this unique opportunity to practice in a more consistent manner and generate uh, interesting new results. But it's worthwhile to remember what, what we're doing and why we're doing it. So the goal of meditation is not calmness. It's not stillness. Those are side effects. The goal of meditation uh, is what the Buddha called uh, seeing or knowing or understanding. So wisdom is not some really, really still state with nothing happening. That might be samadhi. So remember that having the mind get really still and really quiet, although it's very nice, that's just uh, it's not where we can live our lives and it's not really the goal of meditation. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to know and see what it is that the Buddha has been pointing out all this time. And when we know properly, then um, in a way, while we're seeing it, the illusion is dispelled. And the illusion is what traps the mind in constantly pursuing, (coughs) running away from, and being dissatisfied. So the illusion is a kind of uh, trick, or uh, spell, or enchantment. And so what we're trying to do is achieve disenchantment. And this doesn't mean depression. It simply means no longer being fooled. Uh, and once the mind experiences some degree of disenchantment, because of its deep-seeing into the truth, then uh, even if the mind subsequently, uh, because of your life circumstances, find yourself back in the same sorts of mental habits as before, uh, you still have an, an additional degree of freedom because of what you've seen. And so that's what we're here to try to pursue. So just remember that calmness and stillness, these are a means to an end, I and mean, they're just something that happens along the way rather than the, uh, the goal of the practice. Nonetheless, uh, because it is a means to an end, we do have to sort of make a point of pursuing it. And we pursue it by anchoring our attention on something very, very here and now and the body is a great source of here and nowness, because it doesn't have a choice. It can't be anywhere else, yeah. ideally. <laughs> like if your body is occurring in the future, then where are you? So, so the body only occurs here and now. And when we point our mind at, what our, at what's going on with our body, then our mind is necessarily also attending to what's happening here and now. So we use the body as, a, as an anchor or as a, a, a frame of reference. And we keep coming back to it. We never really get finished with it. Um, but again, it's not, it's not like the body is somehow itself going to help the mind, allow the mind to see. There's nothing to really to see particularly in the body itself. It's simply a means to an end. But nonetheless, as we're watching the body and holding the mind in the present moment, and we keep abandoning the mind's tendencies to, to uh, flit away into the future or the past or into fantasy or into speculation or into idle thinking, and we just keep bringing the mind back to what's actually happening right here, right now, um, that dynamic of continuing to come back and actually seeing what's happening right now uh, is part of the education of the nature of the mind. Because ultimately what we're trying to see is what it is that the mind does. Not what the body does, but what the mind does. We use the mind as something to, to attend to, but as we're attending, we can't help but notice what it is that our mind is doing, especially as the mind's ability to, to pay attention increases. So the instructions, as you've heard them before, is very simple. We start off with something pretty coarse, pretty obvious, really concrete. The breath. At any moment, are you breathing in or are you breathing out? And how can you tell? You can tell because of the physical sensations. So just know over and over again, now, here's the breath, here's the breath, there it is, still there. (coughs) And if you can get the mind to stay with this coarse breath and not a very long time, it'll start to get bored with just that. So in order to keep the mind engaged, we keep uh, adding to the task, we keep refining the task. So once you've got a bit of a grip on the breath itself as a phenomena, something happening here and now, um, push your edge a little bit and see if you can notice the in-breath as separate from the out-breath. Notice the cycle. And when you're able to stay with that, you go a little further and try to notice the beginning of the in-breath and the beginning of the outbreath. And along the way you'll notice the ends of the in-breath and the outbreath. And so now you're tuning into more and more details about the nature of this physical phenomenon. And this sharpens the mind's observational abilities. If the mind is still as has more capacity then try to notice all the little jots and wiggles and buzzes and vibrations and temperature changes associated with each individual in-breath and then the same level of detail with each individual out-breath as though you're watching a parade and you're trying to pick out every person in the parade and what they're doing so you point your mind at this phenomena and insofar as the mind has the ability to stay with it you keep increasing the amount of detail that you pick out as a way of keeping the mind on task and keeping the mind sharpening in terms of its observational capacity. When the mind's fully engaged with the breath over time, the mind will do things that's not necessarily what you intended. Uh, It'll start thinking, it'll have an emotional reaction, it'll get bored, And when those things happen, that's when your observational strength will serve you well. Because it's these things that the mind does spontaneously uh, that will help educate you on this knowing and seeing that the Buddha is asking us to arrive at. When it comes to walking meditation, the instruction is very much the same. When we walk we start off by just noticing that we're walking. Walking, walking, walking. And as soon as we can stay with that, then we up up our game. We go for noticing the left and the right aspect of the strides. Left, right, left, right, left, right. And we walk, then we start slowing down a little bit. Walk more walk more slowly. And notice how long the left and how long the right lasts. And then start to notice the the part where the foot comes up and where the foot moves and then where the foot comes down for each step. And as you're doing this, of course, you're increasing your focus, increasing your attention, uh, consolidating the mind's presence in the present moment. And eventually, then, amount of refinement which is possible to, to bring to the process of walking can be quite striking where you notice every little buzz and vibration and pressure change as the foot slowly comes rolling off the surface, the texture of which you are deeply aware of and the tiny little shifts of your sock as the foot comes closer and closer to lifting off so the mind can get really in there really down to the details and you can notice all these details for the lifting phase for the moving phase and for the setting down phase and it's quite natural to slow down the pace as this amount of detail starts to reveal itself so we don't necessarily walk slowly for its own sake but for the sake of experiencing more of these details. And so it's, it should be a kind of a natural evolution where at first uh, you walk fairly briskly just in order to have something very, very coarse for the mind to pay attention to. And then it gets gentler and gentler, lighter and slower, less vigorous uh, physically as the mind becomes more powerful mentally. Our goal, ultimately, really, is to have the mind be sharp enough to know what's going on in the body and the mind at any time. So the mind, in order for it to do that, has to be very, very observant. It can't be preoccupied. It can't be distracted. It has to stay right in the present moment, and it has to have an increasingly broad span of attention, able to notice more and more subtle details. So the mind becomes apparent to us, it becomes visible as a consequence of our efforts at sharpening our attention using the body as our sharpening stone. So the sharp mind can notice irritation arising and irritation fading away. It can notice interest arising and interest fading away. It can notice feeling, it can notice perception, it can notice all kinds of subtleties of mental process that are simply invisible to us in our normal, non-meditative course of life. The mind is the, where, the, where all the trouble is and when it comes to suffering, and the mind is where freedom is known. And so as we develop our meditation, our ability to observe the mind uh, becomes quite strong. And, um, but even so, that, that strength of observational capacity will wax and wane. There'll be times when it's quite noticeable and other times when it's fairly weak. And so we, we, we simply play along with whatever the weather is doing So our attention is like weather. Sometimes it's sunny and bright, other times it's cloudy and dark. So when it's cloudy and dark, we use the body body as an anchor to keep ourselves in the present moment. And don't worry too much about noticing what's going on with the mind. Just keep it aiming attention right at the very concrete processes of the body. And when the weather is sunny and clear, and you can notice all kinds of interesting details, then it's quite alright to simply pay more and more attention to what's actually happening in the mind. And this is the natural progression of uh, the four foundations of mindfulness. We start off noticing the body, then we pay attention to uh, to postures, to all the gestures of the body, both in formal meditation and between meditation sessions. We try to build up continuity of mindfulness in this way. And inevitably we'll notice things that are pleasant and unpleasant. And so this is attending to feeling. And as our mind gets sharper and sharper, we'll be able to see uh, all the, the different states of the mind coming and going. And this is the third Satipatthana. Uh, knowing mind is mind. The fourth Satipatthana is simply uh, framing our experience through the lens of the Dhamma teachings. So uh, this is a fairly spontaneous process. You start simply notice that the Four Noble Truths are showing themselves. This is suffering, this is the cause of suffering, this is the uh, cessation of suffering, and this is the way leading to to the cessation of suffering. Uh, they become no longer merely phrases. They become something that you're experiencing, as you're watching the mind and the body. So you notice the four noble truths. You notice the five aggregates, the six sense spheres, the uh, the factors of enlightenment. They all become. They all start to show themselves to you. And so the the thing that you can aim your 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 attention at starts off just being. The breath or the feet in the present moment. And eventually you can, you find you can aim your attention at very, very subtle. uh, Very, very, almost invisible things. And still know what's going on. So this is where we're headed. This is what we're trying to, uh, this is ultimately what we're cultivating. And the way to get there is just to keep pushing your edge. Uh, If the mind is, uh, noticing the breath coming and going,'t don't, don't rest on your laurels. Uh, see if you can see it just a little bit more. Notice a little more detail. At the same time, don't become impatient. Right? The mind develops, it cools off from its normal, distracted uh, state. It cools off at a, a kind of a slow pace, like a, a big pot of boiling water. Now you turn off the heat. And the pot starts to cool off, but you can't necessarily expect it to be cool uh, in a matter of minutes. You have to wait a fairly long time, but eventually it will become cool, as long as you don't keep, if as long as you don't go back to heating it up. So we're just going to let things cool down. One last point I'd like to reflect on is, uh, I've hinted at it a little bit, this notion of. Helping to anchor attention using a tech a technique called noting, which isn't really found in the Ajahn Chah tradition, but I've been studying outside the Ajahn Chah tradition, so I'll just maybe offer this as a possibility if you're interested. Um, noting is um, can get a bad rap, and it's by itself it's just another technique, and it may or may not help you. But think of noting as a way of acknowledging what's actually happening, stepping back from the process of what's happening and simply reminding yourself that oh, this is what's happening. So uh, quite literally, as you're watching the breath come and go, you could note it by saying, as the breath comes in, just say to yourself, uh, in or rising. And as the breath goes out, out or falling and think of that as a a mental whisper like a a a narrator in a film simply saying and now the breath is going out (laughs) and now the breath is coming in and you're really paying attention to the breath coming in and going out but part of you just knows is able to Verbalize what it is that's happening. Uh, That verbalization process is a little distracting. It does take you away a little bit from the experience. And actually that's part of the point. Because it's possible, it's quite common, for the mind to get drawn into the content of experience, to identify with it, and lose track of the overall process that we're involved with here, which is to develop the mind's ability to observe and to know what's going on without being entangled in the process. So normally our thoughts entangle us. But if we can know that the mind is thinking, then the thoughts can be there without us being entangled. And so when, the, when you're able to know that your mind is thinking, or it's remembering, or it's having an emotional reaction, or it's getting dull, or it's getting bright, or that it's happy, or that it's sad, if you can know these things about the mind without identifying with those contents, then nothing can really pull you off the topic of meditation. And so this is the power of what's called this noting practice. And I encourage you to, if you haven't done it before, to try playing around with it a little bit. In the Mahasi tradition, they're quite uh, Quite strong in the recommendation that you note every moment of experience, make a note. Um, But I think it's highly uh, idiosyncratic. Each person has their own uh, best method for knowing what's going on in their own mind, and so I offer noting as a as a suggestion, something that you might try if you haven't got much experience with it. And if you do have experience with it, then of course uh, you already know what it can do. Um, but uh, as with all other techniques, it's important to remember what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. Right. So if you know what, what it is you're trying to accomplish, then you won't get lost just in the technique itself. It's not a sort of turning the crank thing where you're noting for its own sake. You're trying to train your mind to develop the habit of regularly stepping back from what's happening to look at the big picture of how it is the mind is involved and affected by what's happening. So if you're having an emotional memory come up from childhood and that's all you're really thinking about, and that's the extent of your awareness, um, then you're much more likely to get drawn into a long mental soliloquy of memories that are all linked to each other. And this is actually a kind of suffering and if you're deeply embedded in this mind wandering through memory then um, you're not learning anything. You're not, knowing, you're not knowing what the mind is doing. You're simply experiencing the mind by being the mind. So by teaching yourself to stand back every second or so and go thinking, thinking, remembering, remembering, that breaks up the, pro- the tendency for the mind to get sucked into the content. And so you cycle between the content, the experience of what it is that's happening right now, and stepping back and noticing the quality of your attention that allows you to, to stand back from your experience. And so noting helps build that strength of mind, that habit of mind, to be able to step back and look at the big picture. And eventually it can develop into a kind of continual power of mind, a stance of mind, where uh, you're always aware of what the mind is doing, what the body is doing, and also aware of the quality of your attention, how bright it is, how broad it is, uh, how detailed the objects are appearing. Uh, So this mindfulness of mind becomes nonverbal, even though you use this kind of verbal technique to go in that direction. So these are some of the possibilities of this, uh, this addition to your bag of tricks as a meditator. And then maybe last I'll just mention, um, um, along the way it's not uncommon for us to find ourselves, despite our efforts, uh, embroiled in some unhelpful mind states so sadness can come up and overwhelm you, depression, uh, uh, despair, uh, um, anger, guilt, all shame, all kinds of things can come up that are unhelpful. And of course, if your attention and your noting practice isn't quite up to mark yet, you might not be powerful enough to be able to just note it and watch it fade away. So there are, are very powerful techniques to help manage these unhelpful mind states that the Buddha has given us. And uh, the two most important ones, I think, are uh, our ability to uh, recognize what's happening and then substitute the opposite. So if the mind is, is, has been sucked into some state of uh, anger, for example, then substituting the opposite is simply pointing the mind away from the provocative, angry, uh stream of thoughts and the objects that are are, uh, prominent in that stream of thoughts, and redirect your attention towards something which is not provocative of anger. So you simply aim the mind at something else. This is substitution. And uh, as you play (coughs) around with it, you'll find objects that work for you. Uh, For me, uh, thinking of cats always works. If I become angry and I think of cats, then I'll start smiling in a few minutes and the anger goes away, uh, especially if they're kittens, especially if they're playing. So, and I've got, you know, thousands of hours of, of memories of watching cats uh, play. So, um, but it could be anything that works for you, right? it's it's just a technique, there's nothing magical about the uh, the content, you find something wholesome to substitute. The classics are to substitute thoughts of meta, thoughts of goodwill. And if you can get there, if you can go from having a stream of angry thoughts to being able to substitute thoughts like, may they be well, may they be happy, then that's fantastic, and I highly encourage that. It's worth playing around with. Sometimes you can completely short-circuit the mind uh, getting into a rut by thinking of the diametric opposite of the thing the mind's playing with. So um, substitution is really powerful, and I encourage you to use it. And the same thing, the another technique is reflection. So sometimes, when especially when it seems like energy is down, there's a feeling like uh, this is never going to work, or despair starts to get in there and starts to clog the, the process, um, instead of trying to make the mind meditate by focusing your attention on these physical and mental objects, um, use the especially if the mind's kind of restless, it wants to think. Use the thinking and discursive capacity of the mind to think and carry on discursive uh, activities uh, regarding a wholesome topic. And so wholesome topics are uh, recollections. Recollections of the Buddha, the qualities of the Buddha, recollection of the Dhamma, the qualities of the Dhamma, recollection of, of course, the... The practicing sangha, recollection of the benefits of practice, recollection of your own practice, uh, recollection of your teachers, recollection of the devas, if you find that inspiring. Uh, Recollection of your own goodness. This is very powerful if the mind's getting into a negative state about um, what... uh, What uh, a fill in your pick your favorite negative uh, adjective. What a so and so I am. What a failure I am, or what a what a fraud I am. Whatever it is that your your mind's saying to you. All you have to do is (coughs) is to to derail that is intentionally think of something that you've done in the recent past that was friendly. That was generous. That was. open-handed, that was undefended, that was helpful, uh, that was supportive, that was kindly. And because you're all good people, we're all good people here, you're going to have lots and lots of examples if you let yourself bring them up, right? So even just smiling at someone, greeting them in a kind way, (coughs) looking at your friend and asking how they are, listening to their answer, Um, parking your car carefully so that others can get in. Closing your door quietly so that you don't disturb other people. um, Offering something that someone's looking for. Tiny, tiny little gestures. Look for them. And when you think about those, even when you're looking for those in your experience, the mind is no longer embroiled in the unwholesome state. Just the intention to, to reflect on the wholesome is itself a wholesome thing. The fact that you've come here to meditate is a very, very wholesome act. The fact that you've ever listened to Dhamma talk is a very wholesome act. So these things are all um, available to you, you just have to make the effort to point the tension in that direction. And that will get you, that will, I can save you from a lot of wasted time uh, with the mind going thorn, down some habitual uh, wheel track, a deep rut of negativity and unhelpfulness and then you can get back back on track and back to your meditation object. And um, so there's a lot of technique here. There's a lot of, a lot of instruction. Um, use it as best you can without grasping at results, right? Because we can't control how fast things develop. All we can do is put in place the causes and conditions for development to happen. This is how we make kama. We set an intention and we take action. Intention is the kama. And the action is the manifestation of that kama. And so we keep making this good kama, this good intention to practice, good intention to meditate. And uh, over and over again, as we continue in this cycle, we'll start to see the fruits of that good kama coming back to us as, we're, as our meditation proceeds but we never really know when it's going to come to full fruition it might be this this, this very retreat so there's no point in uh, in holding back right it's a rare opportunity to go on retreat so uh, putting forth a steady consistent as as close to unbroken as you can achieve uh, is very very helpful in generating this virtuous cycle of karma that eventually bears the fruit that you you've uh, been pursuing. So I offer those comments for your reflection. Um, maybe we can sit together for another 15 minutes or so, and then I'll ring a bell, and you can carry on sitting and walking uh, up until the uh, till the meal time.